Welcome everyone to another meetup of data on Kubernetes. I've been talking to different people now, and this is we are this is meetup number 40 something in English, but now we have moved on to other languages such as Spanish, Portuguese, and we have our first meetup on in Hindi that'll be on Friday. So between wow. now and Friday, I have to learn how to say, hi, my name is Bart and I don't speak Hindi. <laughs> um, BJ, maybe you can help me with that later. Another couple of announcements before we get started though. Gorka, can you uh, share our screen and show the website? If you haven't seen already, you're gonna hear about it now. We will be uh, hosting a co-located event in KubeCon next week on May 3rd. It is 100% free. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning at CEST uh, European time and goes until 5 p.m. Uh, European time. We will have about 15 different talks um, from different companies and also end users. Even gonna be adding some new talks this week, a couple more, cause you got a little bit more space that we wanna get in there. Um, so if you wanna sign up for the event, if you already signed up for KubeCon, registration is 100% free. Um, this will, all, you can get all the information there from the CNCF website. Big shout out to all of our friends at the CNCF who've been helping us out with uh, preparing the event. The numbers look really good. We've already got 2,000 people signed up. Um, so very, very nice response to see that so many folks are interested. Um, we're also going to be putting everything on YouTube so everyone will be able to see everything um, in, the, in the following days. If you want to check out the schedule, thank you, Gorka, um, you can just go to our website, dok.community, and you'll see all the talks, exactly what time they're going to be there. Um, also registration, access from there too, so you can get on there um, and check everything out. But like I said, we've got a really, really nice lineup of a lot of different perspectives, the idea is to make it more comfortable to have conversations about data on Kubernetes, the exact thing we've been doing with all the meetups that we've been having, all the different opinions we've been hearing from folks out there, their experiences, their use cases. And very excited to be with our wonderful guest today, VJ, who has a very interesting curriculum, um, not just limited to technical stuff. As we can see behind him, there are a couple of keyboards and a, and a recording booth um, so we're definitely going to be talking about music, but first of all, Vijay, can you just introduce yourself? Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Another quick message before we get started, all the love in the world, positive energy and thoughts are with all the wonderful people in India. We are with you. This is a global thing we're facing together. We are hundred yeah. percent with you. We don't want anyone to feel behind. Like I said, this is a global community. We've got a lot of, we got a lot of friends in India in our community. So big shout out, lots of love and energy and support to everybody there. Um, but Vijay, that being said, very, very welcome to, uh, to have you here. Very happy to have you. Can you just introduce yourself, your background? Sure. Who are you? And what are we going to be talking about today? <laughs> okay. Hey, first of all, thanks, Bart. And thanks for reaching out to me. I think this is a great opportunity. Uh, this is something that I always wanted to do to, to talk to the community and share whatever little I know about what is happening and uh, what I have been working on. I'm AB, uh, my full name is AB Vijay Kumar. You don't want to know what is the full form of A and B, right? So it becomes. I do, two. I do, I do, I do. I do. <laughs> well, you can't say okay. that and then not say it. Yeah, what is it? Yeah, yeah. it's actually Anantapur Bache Vijay Kumar. So in, in, in India, what we do is. We have a family name and then we have the real name, right? So uh, it's, it's uh, AB is more of a family name. All my brothers, my father, everybody has that uh, in the beginning. Yeah, um, yeah I've been with IBM for uh, 23 years now already. Um, uh, IBM is my first job. I joined IBM as a Java developer. That's when Java was just uh, picking up. And uh, uh, since then, I have focused to be in the technical line, right? So I have grown uh, maybe every step of the ladder uh, in the technical career path in IBM. Uh, um, I'm an IBM Distinguished Engineer now. I'm the CTO for Hybrid Cloud Management, which is the largest uh, uh, I, I, largest unit, which uh, which you know almost is sixty percent of uh, or fifty percent of uh, the GBS IBM services business, right? So which involves uh, building all of these, um, you know, AI ops, data ops, DevSecOps, coming up with the next generation of uh, ways of uh, doing, um, you know, uh, management on the cloud, right? So how do you do hybrid cloud management, multi-cloud management, all those spaces, right? So, so I'm responsible for defining the technical strategy. I'm also a master inventor. I have around 61, 31 uh, filed, I mean, 31, issued patents and around 30 in the pipe. So it's around 60 filed. 
Okay, 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 okay. Just like, just like you, if you can, if you tell me what your your name is, AB, and then you won't tell me, you've got thirty over thirty patents already registered and thirty more. Than yeah. Can you just give us a little bit of insight? A, um, what are those patents about? If you can share that information. Okay. And yeah. B, where do you get the time to do all this stuff? <laughs> like, yeah. So it, it uh, so um, most of my patents are. I worked before this hybrid cloud. I was uh, the CTO for Apple IBM partnership. There's a lot of AI that we did uh, along with mobile, uh, AR, VR uh, kind of stuff, right? And then um, some of them are on drones and soft robotics. How do you apply soft robotics for disaster management and things like that? Some of them are in blockchain and a lot of them are on cloud. Um, you can find it on Google. All, all the T patents are there issued uh, on Google. Um, yeah, I mean, the ones which are patent pending, you may not find it, right? So, yeah. I'm just curious, um, does anybody else in the audience have a patent? <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, yeah. I'm just curious as well, too, are your patents registered? First, you register them in India? I, like, because I've always, I know no, the intellectual property normally... is complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's normally in U.S. because IBM is a, a headquarters is in U.S. Yeah, uh, but some of the ideas they actually uh, patent it in other other offices. Like there, there are a couple which got patent, uh, which got filed also in China, right? So okay, yeah. Anyway, so that yeah. can always be that can always be a thing. Is like you know depending on what you discover, and the other ones that are on the way are they also related to yeah most of them artificial intelligence, AR, VR stuff like that. Yeah, most of them are in that area, right? So gaming, uh, I have three uh, in VR gaming. So <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. All right. I'm right, a big, right. big gamer, right? So when, okay. when I play a game, I get some ideas and I just package it and put it in. Anyway, this is amazing. This is amazing. Can we go off on a little bit of a tangent then? Uh, favorite, what are your favorite video games? Uh, right now, my favorite is this Ghost of Tsushima. So I just finished it once and I I just bought my PS5. So I want to play it again in PS5, but not getting time. So I just installed it, but I finished in PS4. Okay. All right. All right. Um, very, very good. Anyway, so we, we got plenty of different things that we can talk about. Now, can you tell me, <laughs> what was your, what was your, when was your first experience with Kubernetes? Um, yeah, I mean, see, uh, I have heard of this first time when I was curious to know how the hell Google does this, right? So many search searches, you know, how are they even thinking of a data center that can handle this kind of a load, right? And I, I think I watched some YouTube video of somebody actually talking about, um, was it a YouTube video or somewhere, right? I saw one video which was talking about how they manage these workloads. And that's the first time I heard, it was not called Kubernetes, it was called something else that time, right? Borg, um, yeah. Yeah, Borg, correct, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, 2015, 2016 is when I really wanted to try this out. And uh, that time it was not that sophisticated. It was a pain to get it working on on, on uh, uh, my uh, machine, right? But yeah, I, I would say around 2015 is when I really got interested into this whole thing, yeah. Okay. And, you know, I think for at that point in time as well, I would also like to know in your experience, what, you know, because I think you may have already mentioned this, starting to work on multi-cloud, what was the first time that you heard about that? Because, you know, a big part about, you know, Kubernetes, avoiding vendor lock-in, um, and particularly working for IBM that has a cloud, um, interesting to be in a space where it's, you know, sort of reconciling those differences, negotiating between one another, giving uh, users the freedom of choice, um, things of that uh, of that sort. What what was that like? I think multi cloud. I didn't when I started Kubernetes. My focus was more more on you know how do you move out of VM and have a thinner way of doing things. Um, then the microservices revolution started, and you know we were trying to build containers and microservices and all that. I think the multi cloud hit me when I started learning OpenShift. Really, right? So. Uh, that's the first time when it hit me. Of course, then I went back and said, you know what, OpenShift is Kubernetes end of the day, right? So, um, 
yeah uh, when when i saw when ibm was uh, negotiating on this we, i was just trying around with openshift and then i realized the openshift is available as a managed services managed service on pretty much all the hyperscalers right uh, so that's when i thought oh okay you know this this makes a lot of sense right so and then we were thinking of multi cluster deployments multi region multi uh, cloud deployments how do you have a single control plane to manage clusters that's across uh, so it, i would say last 2 3 years have been exploring in that area and the ibm satellite which we recently launched and anthos all these things right so kind of made it much more exciting i think right cubefed for example right so okay all right um now specifically more jumping into the topic of today the first what was the first time you heard about data ops oh uh, pretty early in my career actually uh, we we never used to call it data ops then but uh, oh. we were yeah we did have pipelines we were actually one of the first times why i worked with a large retail company uh, i'm sorry i cannot take client names i i don't no, have clearance okay. but yeah it's a large retail company who have these shopping malls right and uh, they were they were basically having this issue of data coming from sensors Uh, this is like six or seven years back, maybe. Yeah, um, uh, sensor feeding all the information about who is buying what. Uh, then you have the credit card transactions feeding in, and then you have the inventory information: what is in stock, what is in the transit, and things like that. Right. So there is like this real-time data, and uh, the retail company really had a challenge in terms of silos of applications, silos of data. Right, and um, the biggest problem was there's a lot of junk in the data right so they they didn't have a process of actually clean, keeping the data clean right and it was more of a, a data quality issue right if you if you compare that to the today's uh, terminology of data ops right so there was no data platform strategy it was all you know whoever liked whatever database they used to buy they had like db2 they had uh, they had uh, pretty much all the flavors of oracle and mysql around right so mm-hmm. so there was no concept of you know and if you have to do uh, uh, analytics it would take 3 to 6 months unbelievable right so if i have to know what is the pattern that i need to do i need to do you know i need to do a oltp uh, to olap uh, etl right and then i dig, i use data mining and stuff to really look at what are the patterns of buying of people what should be order pre order and things like that so that's when we started thinking of the stream analytics you know how do you create a pipeline as the data gets into the database how do you start thinking of data lake kind of a kind of a solution where when it when the data comes into the lake how do you make sure the data is clean and uh, uh, really your question on slack right enriched right so is yeah. it making sense or is it uh, only sensible data should come into the lake so that when i do analytics i have um, and of course there is a lot of compliance regulations and we'll talk about it i think we have one hour to go right so um, so that's when I, it hit me that you need a similar structure like how we do code management right from devops you need data management in similar way so the in 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 code we are so good in gitops and devops where you check in the code the code gets uh, validated it goes from one environment to other environment finally it goes to the production right it is all like very very well streamlined but that is only the compute right what about data when when some data comes in am i following similar things and when uh, even even the development and operations were like two big teams right so the people who build the data is one team i mean build uh, building the schema and all that stuff right and then there is another team who is managing this data then there is another team which is basically extracting this data into an olap and trying to do analytics it doesn't make sense right so i mean the same principles we are applied in code can be applied here and that's the whole concept of data ops where you have a integrated squad sitting together all of them talking about you know how how do you integrate how do you think of microservices we moved from monolith to microservices similarly how can i break down my monolith database into 
more i wouldn't say micro databases but you know more like you know domain driven domain specific databases right and then how these domain specific databases bring data into one place for me to do the analytics so that's the whole idea of uh, uh, you know the data ops i would say all right very very good but as you said and i think this happens a lot of times you know it's like was it something that was being done previously just with a different name but like you said i think a lot of it's you know opening your eyes to oh the same principles that are used here for coding can also be used in in other areas exactly. so that you don't need to reinvent the wheel and that you see the logic yeah. behind that and then infusing those things together yeah. Um, all right. So with, with, with that, um, what would you say about, uh, you know, the tooling that needs to go into all this, or at least in your experience? Uh, yeah. So there are various types of toolings, right? I mean, it's a pipeline end of the day. It's like the same problem. We One is it is a polyglot, right? When I say polyglot, uh, you have, first of all, structured, non-structured data, within that you have various flavors of uh, tools and uh, uh, platforms that store all of these data right now you cannot you cannot say hey guys throw away whatever technology you have tools you have that's all move to one one data platform it doesn't make sense so the the tool ecosystem of data pretty much stays uh, as it is but the data platform on top of it kind of brings all these pieces together right so it's mm-hmm. not like I, I live with what tools I have, right? I exactly, if you, again, you, you compare this with the code, right? You still have Java, you still have C, you still have C++, you still have mainframe, but I can still have a DevOps pipeline, which gets all the code integrated and deployed, right? So, but here it's much more than integrating and uh, deploying, but also making sense of it, cleansing the data, uh, you know, uh, making sense of the data and, you know, how do you, uh, uh, enforce compliance, how do you enforce global consumption? There could be masking, for example. How do you build a metadata model out of it? So the, the underlying technologies will continue to be there, like DB2, Oracle, MySQL, uh, even IMS, for example. There are clients where I'm still going back to legacy IMS kicks transactions, right? I still keep it there, but you know, how do you have one platform so there is data kitchen there is uh, you know cloud pack for data which is our ibm product and then we have snowflake is very widely uh, looked at as one of the tools right but data kitchen i think is much more uh, much more in line with a lot of these concepts right uh, yeah i mean each of these clients even aws platform have their own point of view even the cloud platforms are coming up with their own uh, data ops uh, uh, tool set right but most of the times I hear a lot of Snowflake. Uh, I hear a lot of Data Kitchen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Snowflake does seem to be quite, uh, uh, you know, a hot, hot topic in terms of, of tooling. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, if, if someone wants to get involved in data ops, what would you say? Like, before you start, you should probably, let's think about resources. Let's think about mistakes that you may have seen. Let's think about maybe, you know, stuff that you want to avoid, best practices. What would you recommend? See, I think... Uh, Data is not like code, right? I mean, code is something that you can learn a programming language. If you have some logic, you can start writing the code, right? Mm. Uh, when you get into data ops, one of the key aspects of data ops is the domain knowledge, right? So you need to know what is the data that you are handling. It's not like you take one technology, apply it, and it will start working, right? Um, uh, it makes sense maybe at a lower maturity level of data ops where you are just automating things. You are just writing an ETL, hey, transform this to this kind of a thing is a pure technical play. But as you get into the maturity uh, steps towards you know, more and more mature data ops, you're talking more and more about domain, right? So you need to understand how oh, this is information about a product. This is the information about a order, right? Now, unless you have the knowledge of domain, you cannot do domain specific uh, de- you know, decomposition of data, right? Mm-hmm. And you cannot write algorithms which will uh, cleanse the data. You need to know what is good data, what is bad data, right? You need to know how you take this what, data. What, what, what's it, yeah. yeah, what's your, can we just unpack that a little bit? What's your definition of bad data? Uh, see, bad data is, there are various definitions of that, right? So one is uh, the uh, the validity of the data, right? 
So when you look at the transactional uh, systems, you have a lot of data which is not valid anymore, right? So though it is it is good data, but it is not useful for me to do analytics. The second is data which may not help me in coming up with any analytic uh, and analytics or uh, deriving at a KPI that I'm looking for, right? So it is like you always go for find data which you're looking for. It's not like you know, there's at, at, at a particular, for a particular KPI, this data may be bad. I mean, this data may not be useful, but for a different KPI, this data is still useful. You get what I'm saying? I know, I think yeah. it's a really good point. And, and that's what a lot, what a lot of this comes down to is like, before you start touching any technologies, first of all, like you said, what are your KPIs? What's the outcome yeah. that's desired here? And like exactly. Said, so depending on the use case, then one thing might seem good and another thing might seem bad. So I understand what you, and so that's why maybe it's even sometimes a little bit dangerous to say good or bad, yeah. but it's appropriate based on those KPIs. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's exactly why I said that it's not a technical play. It's more of a business play because you need to understand the business in which when, when your client comes and says, Hey, I want to increase my, let's say, uh, increase my throughput of, uh, uh, or I want to make my supply chain optimized, right? Mm. So there are at least like, I would think of 10 to 12 uh, domains that will come together if you want to optimize the supply chain, data domains. Now that yeah. 10 domains might boil down into, into uh, around 20 to 25 data sources that you might have, right? Which might boil down to at least, you know, uh, hundreds of data uh, elements that you are talking about. Right? So it, 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 it goes more top down when you go into a mature data ops, right? So you need to, to answer your question. I know it's a very long answer, but- No, 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 but it's a good your one. Question, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so the data engineers, it's, it's much more uh, easier for data engineers, data scientists to embrace data ops rather than a DevOps engineer trying to become a data engineer, unless uh, he or she has that complete understanding of the particular domain, right? Uh, so that's that's what I feel. Uh, I could be wrong, but yeah. No, but I think it's a good point. And to unpack a little bit further, as a CTO, you're, I would imagine, constantly balancing tech and business, right? So yep. yeah. in, in, this, in this particular situation as well, we talk a lot about the community and we're, we, we try to think about all right, it's wonderful to talk about this or about that, but if someone isn't willing to pay for it, then, I mean, it's still an interesting technology, but in terms of its practical value, and actually, and this isn't just to promote our event next week, but one of the talks that we're going to be having next week is, you know, how to sell cloud native internally. And so whether it's, whether it's Kubernetes, whether it's this, whether it's that, how do you convince somebody in a simplified enough way that like, you know, we really need this, our customers, there's going to be a demand for it. Maybe not now, but we need to start thinking about it. And which is the, one of the very reasons why we have a lot of these conversations is because we are convinced that, you know, there's a strong shift that's going to be coming in the market um, towards yeah. um, stateful workloads on Kubernetes, all the things that relate to storage operators, data streaming applications, you name it. So in, in your case, uh, in 2021, where we're at right now, how do you see data as a business, the, where the money is, um, what your customers are, are, are asking for? What's your take on that? See, I, I see a sudden uh, spike on this because now I think uh, most of the uh, enterprises are very matured in terms of the applications that they have developed, right? So you, you take any, any area, like, you know, everybody pretty much talks about Hey, you know, online check-in, pretty much, you know, everybody has the most good-looking uh, websites or portals, right, uh, where you can go browse a product catalog and buy the product, right? That's not a differentiator anymore. The user experience is, of course, is like, a, is given now. Nobody wants a boring experience on things. Now, the user experience, now the next step of user experience can only be enhanced by bringing in a lot of machine learning and AI, right? where I understand your behavior, I, I understand or predict or preempt what is that you're looking for, right? Uh, within the limits of the privacy norms, right? which is very, very critical, right? Uh, now, that is only possible if you have all the data in your backend in, in, in a particular disciplined way, right? So you, you can't expect a machine learning or an AI if you have a totally messed up data platform, right? So the data platform engineering is one of the key things 
all of all of the clients i discuss with are keeping some money for that right so the data platform engineering data ops is one piece of the puzzle in data, big piece of the puzzle of the data platform engineering but pretty much you know what is my data where am i putting what data what is the data that i want to use for what kind of analytics first asking the question saying where do i want to take the business because the data like i said previously right first if i understand what are my what is my performance indicator that i want to track what is my slo sla that i want to track in terms of how i want to perform in the market that will derive what kind of data i need to uh, keep uh, for for doing my analytics right so uh, so now the differentiation that uh, that every uh, enterprise is looking for will only come if they keep the data as the key resource right so it's become like a key resource right now there's a lot of investment that's why you all of a sudden see there is a lot of uh, uh, hype around data scientists you know uh, pretty much everywhere right so python r is become like the most critical skill right uh, that's mainly because of that and the beauty there is kubernetes make solves the bigger puzzle of because running python r workloads right on an on prem system with lot of data is not that easy right so uh, you need a cloud to to run these kind of you need a high performance cloud you need a high compute right you need a way to elastically scale it up and scale it down it's not like hey i am doing let's say it's diwali time or a christmas time i want to run a lot of workloads on analytics right it's not like i can buy 100 machines in my data center just for that event right instead you know i i i can run it on cloud now is vm a good option or a, or a container a good option to run it obviously the container because i can do more with less resources right so then if i do it in the container uh, you know what is the best way to do that is kubernetes right so that's why i think kubernetes any technologies around kubernetes like openshift all of them become very very critical to run these uh, machine learning and ai workloads right so mm-hmm. so that way you know uh, the data ops that we are building is more and more cloud native it is becoming more and more cloud native right so the pipelines that we build the cleansing that we do with the data all those things right so okay and with that in mind as well too because like you said like the we can say the answers or solutions that kubernetes provides based on certain problems when it comes to the element of you know which is what our community is about of data on kubernetes what do you think are the the primary challenges there or sort of pain points that might prevent some you know some clients that you might have at an enterprise level from saying like hey maybe we're not ready for it yet you know that some people are just a little bit hesitant this seems like a very strong technology that perhaps we don't need which is why in many cases it seems that and you could probably answer this better than me that openshift seems like a more out of the box plug and play um solution yeah. that but but then also we've had plenty of conversations with lots of different folks like you know um you know day 1 day 2 kubernetes you know you know how can you make it simpler for your developers so that they don't you know whether it's security risks or cost control or lots of different things there like i said particularly from the the data questions related to uh to to you know working with kubernetes what are the the obstacles that you think a lot of um that like i said that customers are facing that might seem like a bit of a turn off see one uh, one definite i think see uh, scalability definitely is an advantage elasticity is a definitely an advantage i think we can talk about that but the challenge the biggest challenge is uh, the experience of developers like you rightly pointed out right and uh, uh, doing it yourself with kubernetes is a technical play right is a highly technical play you need to understand a lot about things like you know how do you write yamls what is a deployment what is what is a persistent volume persistent volume claim and things like that and make sure you know it's all coming together uh, uh, that is one of the biggest pains that we have because most of the data scientists don't care about these things right so they they are they are more into the domain right so that's yeah, why it's kind of like out of, yeah out of sight out of mind yeah, yeah exactly the the other very important point is the transaction management that we do right so as we get more and more into a distributed uh, data uh, uh, micro databases that we talk about right so it was re- relatively easy for you to 
manage your transactions when it is a monolith database but when you go into this kind of a model the transaction management the transaction traceability becomes very critical right so how do you plan your read write and read only databases becomes very critical there so this is a totally sh- shift in the paradigm of the way we do data architectures really right so uh, if a traditional guy who comes who has done this data architectures and who has done the schemas and all that stuff you bring him now and say hey here is the kubernetes architecture now build a micro database architecture it he he or she has to unlearn a lot of things and learn, relearn a lot of things like right, in terms of how you think in a structured and uh, unstructured database with a distributed database how do you do transactioning how do you trace the database how do you perform your audits data audits which is very very critical how do you ensure the data privacy is all in place right so all of these layers become the uber layers for your kubernetes cluster which is running your database right so that's why most of the clients are moving towards something like data kitchen snowflake or cloudpack prepackaged or opinionated solutions like that is because of that because they provide that for you right and then you you just need to focus on your data sources and build machine learning algorithms on top of it yeah relates to that as well as because you're mentioning you know um either could be on the technical side or on the client side issue of a traditional mindset as someone who's worked in IBM you know for over 20 years you've seen probably more than a couple of cultural changes and a lot of what it comes along with yeah. kubernetes and data <laughs> yeah you see uh, yeah. and 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 then we and we can relate this to a lot of different things we can relate this to you know the evolution of music i mean anyway lots of different things change over time but and in other organizations they're very resistant towards change you know i don't want to do this i don't want to break the monolith also you have you have people in very very high positions that are going to retire in 5 years and they're like i don't want to be you know spearheading <laughs> a bunch of headaches yeah. so sometimes it, it's as much as we talk about technology there are always cultural factors and human factors that have a role to play there so when we like yeah. i said if we're talking about a data on kubernetes culture a data on kubernetes mindset um how do you create that how do you build that how do you get the the right pieces in place you know even cloud native um causes a lot of headaches um cuz some folks aren't ready for that how how have you experienced that in IBM what advice might you give to, to other companies about how to approach that and and like i said particularly if we're thinking about cloud native kubernetes native um way of thinking yeah. the cloud etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are only uh, see change is definitely going to happen right so there are only two ways you can embrace it either you get hit and then you you learn and change or you change before you get hit right so uh it depends who, who what you want to do but um yeah i mean see uh, like i said you know i had to unlearn a lot of things before uh, i i i would have at least gone through i know i i'll sound very old now all of a sudden but i would have seen at least four or five generations of uh, uh the way we used to do things right so we used to build systems which are stable now we are building systems which are which i embrace change we used to think waterfall now we are thinking agile uh right so similarly uh, dev was a separate team ops was a separate team now we are saying it's an integrated squad uh so the recommendation i have is basically uh you have to move with where the market is going right so the clients are very very smart now it's not like a client will come to you now and say hey you know i have this business problem i don't care what technology you apply i'll i'll take it as long as it works for me right the client is very smart the client knows what he is asking um so they they have their own uh, technology strategy so you start aligning to what they are they, they are looking at and you you have to work on top of it so when you uh, the recent clients i go the ceos i interact with the client level they know much better than what i would know on on some of the topics right so you have to you have to keep up to pace with those things otherwise you you lose out on 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 this right so so i don't know if i answered the question no no you no, asked, no but, but, yeah. but you you are you are and also as well too is that like how can i think it's it's a classic problem and also once again as a cto bridging the gap between tech and business how can you yeah, make exactly. sure that every technical person has somewhat of a business mindset and that every business person you know like i think that's yeah. i think that's tricky because like you said is that 
the client has the final say. They also know their target, you know, like they, they have their own objective source and stress pressure. And so there's even political things that get involved in this at a certain point. Um, yep. But I'm just saying, I think this is something that's useful for all people in the community is like, what are, you know, basic business concepts that every technical person should understand no matter what? What would you say? Or ones that you see that they frequently don't know? Uh, I think, uh, uh, first, I think, is to understand what is the benefit of the solution that I'm putting for the client, right? The business benefit. Uh, technical people have this uh, craving to to bring in the best that they know, or you know, the experiment experimental mind is what we have as technical guys. So we want to use the most shiny object that I can see in the market, right? But does it make sense for the client? Is is it going to bring in a benefit for the client, right? So yeah. that that kind of thinking itself will tone down a lot of thinking uh, in terms of you. That's the first step towards stop thinking technical. Start thinking what client wants. Start thinking what the impact. Second important point is I do a lot of reading on business, not just the technology, right? So uh, I also attend some of the boring business conferences where I, I might fall asleep, but I'll still try to grab when they say supply chain, what are the what are the high level challenges in supply chain? You know, what are the solutions that you have in the market which are related to supply? You don't, I never try to be an expert in all the business domains, but at least when a client is using those uh, business terminology, at least I need to make sense of it and should be able to say back something, at least survive the first level of conversation before I come out of the room, right? Um, that level of knowledge is very important for the technical guys. Uh, and it's 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 a must have, right? Unless you are sitting in a research organization, uh, you know, where you don't really worry about the business side, but you are writing algorithms after algorithms kind of a work, right? But uh, yeah, for services business, it's definitely a must. And I think, I think part of it as well, too, like you were saying, is that I think at the, at the root of all that, there's just a need for curiosity. Like if you're not, if you don't even have, if you're not willing to spend, it doesn't mean you have to spend 10 hours a day reading the Wall Street Journal or yep. Financial Times or things like that, but just something, you know, like go outside yep. your comfort zone, see what's going on. You don't have to exactly. agree with everything. You didn't have to like it, but it's a reality that's going to be there. And as you said, as well as that on the technological side, there's a, a certain trend that you said the shiniest with bells and whistles, but you can't oblige your client to use a technology. Exactly. feel that it's not resolving the problems. Yeah. Um, now, going back to data ops, all right, so, it, it, you know, we have DevOps engineers, now we have, you know, DevSecOps, we have all these different things. Um, do you imagine that this will become its own or it is becoming its own category of I am a data ops engineer as opposed to other yeah, yeah, disciplines? Yeah. yeah. It, oh, it, very it, much. It's a, it's a most demanding, uh, see, there is the site reliability engineering is one. So let me go through the various, various uh flavors of these engineers, right? Perfect. So uh, the spectrum starts, let me take it to the most ops side of it. The most ops side of it are the site reliability engineers who are constantly watching what's happening, right? So now in the, in the code side, in the application side, in the logic side, you are basically looking for this golden signals, what is going wrong and, you know, uh, avoiding failures that happen on the uh, production systems. But yeah. on, you take the same thing on the data ops side. You need people to keep looking for, you know, how I am using, see how the data is coming in. Where is it coming from? Am I uh, am I identifying any anomalies in the data that is coming in? Right. So the anomaly detection, uh, the compliance uh, failure detection, is the data getting masked uh, at the right time? Because now. Like I said, you know, it's no more like, you know, I take a data and dump it and do analytics right, uh, with ETL. It is a real-time analytics. So the data keeps streaming. You have to keep watching what data is coming. How, is it a good data, bad data, what we discussed, right? So uh, how do I cleanse it on the fly? How do I enrich on the fly? And how do I give the data to various consum consumers of the data? So that is the site reliability engineer's job, right? Or equivalent. I don't know if there is a name for that role but uh, it's more of uh, we we call it sre data for data ops right yeah then you have you know we also hear the term dbre database reliability engineer. yeah DBRE, yeah exactly yeah 
data oh, data sorry. resiliency so it's basically their job is to make sure you know they are building a system which is resilient which which doesn't fail in production right so then you have the second level uh, and that is a lot of technical technical things the second level is setting up the data platform right so somebody who sets up it's a more of a technical skill uh, to to look at you know what are the tools that you need what is your data pipeline look like what what are the tools that you use for cleansing what do you do for observability of the data uh, what are the tools that you will use for analytics for doing experiments for example uh, and uh, research and things like that so that is one set of skills there uh, and this this skill very very much aligns to a particular data platform skill uh, like a snowflake expert or you know somebody who understands how to use athena and aws you know to build a data ops or a data lake on aws so it goes in hand with the cloud uh, platform kind of skills right mm-hmm. and then you have the data scientists right so the the highest paid guys <laughs> the these are people who actually are the people who look at you know what is the domain you know what what is the data that you need to to arrive at what kind of analytics uh, what kind of machine learning i need to use to arrive at this kind of prediction and uh, identify anomalies and problems and things like that that is the third level right so at a high level this is like you know these are the three points in the spectrum and you will find people you know in between right so somebody who does both of these somebody who does a little bit of this little bit of this kind of a thing right? and then of course you have the devops engineer are also important so uh, devops engineers work very closely with devops uh, pipeline in terms of some of these pipelines are also uh, set up with jenkins for example right or any such workflows uh, ansible for example you could be using something like red hat ansible for automation and things like that right so the automation uh, skills and devops skills are are like you know the plat- uh, the uh, are the base skills that are also required to uh, support okay So you would say though that in the next few years we will see more people in their LinkedIn profiles saying I'm a data ops engineer or a company saying they're trying to hire, you know, SREs or things like that. Yeah. Okay. Definitely, yeah. I I think it's already there. I mean, uh, just that uh, some people call it uh, data scientists. They generalize it by saying data scientists uh, and uh, there are data engineers, there are DBAs for example, right? So they call, they still call it DBA which is a traditional Uh, yeah. uh way of doing things but yeah dbas are much more smarter right now the the current generation of dbas know most of this stuff what i'm talking about yeah i think it and maybe it just comes down to how someone wants to identify you know how like that they want to yeah. you know be affiliated with more with one or another um all right taking this a little bit further into more technical stuff can you tell us what smart metadata is uh see the uh can you repeat that what, yeah yeah what? smart because we talked about a little bit about metadata earlier and a concept that we've seen a couple of times you know when we had somebody else who was talking about metadata was this thing about smart metadata uh, i've heard of see we create this uh, one of the key task of uh, data ops is to uh, create this meta model of the data right so uh, we we create a meta model of the data because we want to derive a knowledge map from that right so when you are creating a meta there is a there is a big subject called metadata mo- management itself right so it's about how do you create metadata about data data about data right so which is how do you make sense of a particular data uh, that i'm reading is kind of coded into this meta model right now the meta model is what we use for building the things like knowledge map right um why i need knowledge map is if i have to do natural language processing if i have to make sense of the data that is coming see it's not like every time the the data scientist will sit and understand the data and tell you the predictions or uh, you know understand your language so for example this is widely used in uh, the chat based solutions or bots that make sense of the data and you know they uh they they basically so for example we have one solution called uh, cog assist right what it does is it ingests it reads through all the documents that you have right this could be a standard operating procedure document that you have on how to manage a particular application 
it reads through the pdf and word documents and it creates this meta model right and the knowledge map now you can ask the system how to restart a server right it 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 would have created that meta model of the data it doesn't give you the full document right it only gives a snippet of the document and says hey this is how you can get the data right this is how you restart the da- uh, server right so to build ai based uh, such uh, uh, such systems which can most of the chatbots use a lot of this meta models and knowledge maps uh, to 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 um, to uh, to make sense of the question and answer them back i don't know if that is what you are referring to no, as no, smart no, it's meta no no it's good it's good it's good it's good it's good because like i said these are some of the concepts that start appearing when you have these conversations when you start approaching these sort of spaces and once again is that you know uh I think which is why we're having this why we have to have these conversations to get these topics out in the open because you might hear it somewhere you might see it in a blog but until you actually get it in in, in a concrete example as as you just explained they're kind of floating on the air um so that was very good then uh going back to data ops um from a security perspective because I know that a lot of people find security really boring and I understand that there are some reasons why that might be the case um i think because you know some people might think that you know security is like being you know neo in the matrix and doing all this complex hacking and then other people might think that it's kind of like being a lawyer or a policeman and that it's you know really you know dry kind of work what's how does uh, security get involved if we're talking about data ops oh i mean see there are three things which are very very and, critical and particularly if we're thinking about kubernetes because kubernetes presents yeah, some yeah. very specific security concerns yeah. that the folks have to keep in mind okay so let me give the generic then i'll go to kubernetes whatever little okay. i know right so the generic answer is there are three very very important things about data right one is definitely security uh, we talk of data in in motion and data at store right so everything has to be end to end encrypted uh, no matter what as long as the enterprise you are handling any enterprise data right the second very important thing is the privacy right so the data privacy and especially with the gdprs and you know the the compliances that we have around privacy now is very very strict right so you you need to handle and and since you are now dealing with a big data kind of a uh age it's not like you have 10 tables or 20 tables there is structured unstructured data pretty much people developers or anybody can store anything anywhere right so you need to have a governance in terms of how do you ensure that the data is not stored which is not supposed to be stored in a particular place uh, so that it doesn't get exposed and uh, compromising the privacy of a particular uh, employee or a, a particular client or whatever right the third most important thing is compliance right so where do you store what data what data can be can be shared not shared what data needs to be masked uh, when it goes from one region to another region is very very critical right so especially there are norms in europe you know you cannot store data outside europe right uh, all these things become very very critical right so now now coming back to i mean so when we do the data ops architecture we need to be careful about it is not like data is sitting in one place as long as i have put it in the data center i'm happy about it the data keeps moving it is because it's all streaming it's all pipeline data pipeline you know there is data moving from one uh, one one source to another source to another uh, data lake where you are doing some analytics and things like that so you have to be very careful in terms of how you plan the pipeline uh, of the data and are you what are your landing zones of the data and is that landing zone very secured is it as per your privacy norms is it as per your compliance and everything right now the kubernetes wise one good thing about kubernetes is it is more of uh, the 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 compute right so it's more in terms of you are writing your algorithms or you are writing your applications you are writing your uh, whatever logic that you want in terms of to do analytics and uh, whatever not is running on kubernetes right as long as you have followed the kubernetes security architecture i have seen that uh, it pretty much aligns to a lot of corporate uh, security guidelines right but then the problem becomes is the observability right so how do you know whether you are using it or not 
how do you know whether you are your security compliant or not right now one big problem is the open source thing right so a lot of enterprises freak out when you go and show open source right uh, because it might compromise their security so how do you harden your base images how do you make sure you have a process to harden these images and when the images are uh, fixed with any patches or upgrades right do you have a devops gitops pipeline which then goes does a canary deployment across the kubernetes cluster right to ensure that your whole cluster is using the same level of hardened operating system the base image what you create of the docker image right so that i mean there is a lot of work that we need to do around that in terms of how what is your gitops pipeline how what is your hardening process what kind of scanning do you do container scanning image scanning you do right what kind of security tools that you have which keep looking for like you we use a lot of service mesh right so are you also tracking you know uh, the the transaction going through with the, something like yagger and all that right so when you're doing that what data is getting exposed in that right all those things become very very critical right uh, and especially when you have like you know something like um, logging that you do right there's a lot of things that they log people log and sometimes they miss out <laughs> in a debug log i have seen people printing the url from which the request came for example that could be a uh, that might have some some post uh, you know um, consequences uh, yeah <laughs> yeah post parameters that you don't want to share so such things you need you need a very strong observability i think i talked a lot right so let me just bring it together in very simple four words right one is the security compliance and privacy all three of them are important and in kubernetes world we need to have a very strong kubernetes platform built around it where you have observability of not just your workloads and cpu usage but also all the security and you know any any compliance leakages and things like that you need to have a very very uh, well defined uh, security audit features where you are constantly auditing you need to have a way to audit your i mean harden your images as part of your gitops pipeline right so all these become very very critical good i think i think i think we're on the same page is because it's it's often once again because of the attraction to the shiniest you know brightest thing that yeah. security no 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 we'll deal with that later and then it never yeah. really gets in, in place and like you said as well too um and a lot of take... enterprises one last point one lot of yeah, enterprises no prefer to go for a enterprise images right so instead of going for open source versions of it like instead of going for kafka for example they might go for confluence because that provides them that uh, level of you know um, support and uh, security uh, you know promises right so the same thing that that's one of the things that even openshift claims and you know uh, all these commercial versions of the open sources right so they they provide that for you right yeah good um we're getting towards the end so i we we can't i can't look at those keyboards and your microphone and not talk a little bit about music um can you tell us just about what what kind of musical projects you're you're into uh <laughs> yeah. and how and how you can maybe connect those to to the work that you do how we can connect it to kubernetes we we've had other musicians on before so this is not the first time <laughs> yeah I, i yeah so yeah i i it's not like a project or anything i just i just um, i have a s- small studio you can see that um it's been a passion since college days so i i play guitar i play, i play keyboard i sing decent right so i compose my own stuff uh, not that a lot of people listen to it but i just still go and publish it on spotify <laughs> so uh, now that it's easy for me right so to and that, now that there is a very well defined devops pipeline where i can do continuous delivery to spotify so <laughs> i just have to i just have to check in my whatever uh, code i write with my keyboard onto i use distrokit to distribute my music right so i just go upload it and i don't care who is listening the the money i made so far i think in last one year i released three tracks 
i made like 80 cents so i don't care about it <laughs> and and the sad part is the sad part is i cannot encash that 80 cents because distro kit now says hey you need to have minimum 5 dollars before you can encash so all right if you're, it, if you're listening please uh, we'll have to we'll have to share the links on on linkedin and twitter later on um yeah. for your spotify so, so we can get you that 5 dollar limit and make you a truly profitable cash in hand business yeah. um yeah. but still but i think but i think um i think you know because what you mentioned earlier is that i think one of the strongest relationships that i can find with well with music and programming is that there's a lot of creativity and a lot of experimentation um yes. is that i've been playing music since i was eight years old and obviously the music that i played when i was eight or when i was 18 or 28 isn't the same as now that i'm 30 but you know it's like it's a it's an evolutionary process other people right. might might play the exact same thing or people look for different stuff but i always encourage everybody like Not everybody has to be an amazing musician, but I think everyone can kind of do something musically speaking. Like yeah. I always say like have you tried the ukulele? Like it's really easy. Like with one finger you can do it. <laughs> and it's a nice way to it's a nice way to disconnect. Um yeah. so yeah, so that, that's always that's always a fun thing to hear about as well too. Um that being said, we're pretty much out of time. So you did get to meet Anka when we started out, but you probably didn't know what he was doing. Um Gorka, can you share your screen in a second? So while we were talking, uh, there was someone in the background lurking in the shadows who was creating an artistic, uh, an artistic representation of all the things that we were talking about. So in just a, there you go. Um, wow. So can, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we talked about it. We talked about a lot of stuff. So for Angel, uh, and for Angel, English is his third language. So to be keeping up with this. Yeah, this is um, nice. Yeah. I, I think he did. I think he did a pretty good job. Um, and so we have a, a data ops cocktail <laughs> that's been so yeah, this is nice. Um, very so nice. That was, that was very, very good. Um, anyway, yeah, thank you. This yeah, was, this was, uh, yeah. Will you be, will you be sharing this? Uh, of course. This yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll put in the Slack right now. We'll also put on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, it's always yeah, a nice thing because nice. like, um, it's a nice way to get a visual representation of different concepts that are being shared and and bring yeah. them you know down to earth. Um, I think there is a. I think there's a ton of stuff that we can we can take further. I just want before we finish any resources that you would recommend that you go to to get knowledge about uh, whether it's data ops or kubernetes or or anything um just so that folks out there can have some other references. Yeah. So for me the daily dose I get is from InfoQ uh Dev Dzone uh Medium. These are like my daily uh reads, right? So whenever um I get I get some free time I just quickly go through some of them right and of course YouTube is another great resource for me pretty much I go search anything on YouTube you have some really good great guys coming and presenting like people from Google people from AWS first hand experience of how they do these things so um these are my normal resources uh, and of course I go I have a Linux academy account where there are a lot of hands on courses so it's they give a sandbox to play around i like to do i don't remember reading text right unless i try it out i i, I cannot remember that's my memory right so um so whatever it is i need a sandbox i need to try it out once i try it out i'll remember it so that's that's my approach okay All right. But I think uh, once again in the same way with music, trial and error, like I I agree yeah. with you as well. Is that and if yeah. I don't do it, the chances of me remembering it are probably much less. Yeah, um, exactly. anyway, that's good. That's good. But I think once again is that you know, things that that come up a lot here, cultural factors, human factors, continuous learning. Like you said in the past was waterfall, now we do agile, maybe we'll go back to waterfall, maybe we'll be rebuilding monoliths in 10 years, who knows. Um <laughs> yeah. I think it's just being, you know, being open-minded and and being kind to yeah. yourself and um and everything will be fine. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you very much for your time, AB VJ Kumar. Um, Kumar it, was, yeah, right. it was wonderful to have you. Um You you didn't you didn't try my full name yet, right? So that's okay. Yeah, yeah, no no, yeah, tell me tell me tell me again because the first one is is yeah, sure. it's Anantpur. Oh, Anantpur is a place in India. Okay. Uh, Bache is my great grandfather or whoever in the hierarchy, right? One of the base classes, right? <laughs> uh, so Anantpur, Bache, Vijay Kumar. 
Um, I my I my thing is my full name my full full name is Bartholomew Dobbin Peter Farrell. So that that goes quite long. Where I live, where I live here, actually, here people with their last names can trace it out like really, really far. Like everybody has two last names legally, okay. Two, surna- okay. two surnames. So like my my partner's name is Maite Perdin Anclares Asensio, but then she can take it out even further if she wants to mention the fourth, fifth, and sixth. Anyway, um, it's interesting. So we're gonna have to. It's write like you, you lady. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Namespace, namespace. Namespace, namespace. We will have to put your full namespace uh, when we upload uh, the picture to uh, to Twitter and LinkedIn, and no, no, also and, and also and also links to your um, to your music on Spotify, so we can get you okay. to that five dollar mark. Um, in the meantime, <laughs> take ca- take care, and I really mean take care in all the senses: physical health, mental health. Be good to yourself. Play some music. Yeah. Um, try to try to watch videos on YouTube. Be active as, as much as you can. And sure. we'll be sending lots of love and support to everybody out there in India. Sure. Hey, thanks. Thanks for this opportunity, but thanks for reaching out to me. I had good fun, though it's a little late in the night, but I, I didn't realize it was a lot of fun talking to you and great questions. Uh, and I, I am on the Slack community, so people who want to reach out uh, can reach out to me and we can we can talk on Slack. Yeah. Yep. And we also have a music channel. We also have a music group on Slack, so we can talk there too. Yeah, um, so I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll start <laughs> posting anything we'll new. Be, yeah. Good. yeah. Very, very good. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thanks. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys.